0: Good morning, it's good to see everyone here this morning, it's good to be here for those of y'all who I may not have had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Matt Wade, um, and it is a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, Before we begin, um, let me just ask that you continue to keep this a piece of family in your prayers. Um, It is, um, while I consider it a privilege and honor to be up here and to share with you this morning what I've learned. Studying these passages, I'm a poor substitute for Todd Sapisa. So if you will extend me your grace ahead of time, I sure do appreciate it. This morning, we are studying in the book of John and we're continuing our life changing encounters with Jesus. We'll be in chapter 8, verse 1. And before we get started, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather together with fellow believers, to gather together with those who are seeking your truth, to gather together knowing that we need a Savior and that we need you. Dear Lord, be with us this morning. Help us set aside our distractions so that we can understand the word that you've given to us, so we can apply it to our lives. Dear Lord, Lord, We have so many blessings and so much to be thankful for, and one of which is our ability to be here and just to worship freely. These are strange and difficult times, dear Lord, but we know that you are faithful, that you are loving, and that you care deeply for us. And, dear Lord, for that we thank you. We ask that you continue to be with the Sapisa family as they grieve, as they mourn. Dear Lord, we ask that you continue to be with them and give them that peace and that strength that I know that they seek, and I know that you can provide. Thank you, dear Lord, for this opportunity, and may everything we do here this morning bring glory and honor to your Son, our Savior, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So if you will, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 8, I'll go ahead and read our verses, and then we'll get started with our study, the the, um, verse 1 but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery that made her stand before the group and said to Jesus teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. In talking about this wonderful passage, there are some things that I want to talk about. First of all, in your Bible, in what translation you have, you may have some brackets around these verses, and if you do have brackets around, you may not, but if you do have brackets around these verses, part of the reason that you might have brackets around these verses is that this passage does not appear in some of the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. And all, and again, I'm not a biblical scholar, I'm no expert, but there are a lot of biblical scholars out there who believe that this, these actual passages don't actually belong in, this, in the book of John. Now, I did, because when you're studying, I did read a lot about this. And you've got quality, obviously quality people on both sides who have debating opinions as to whether this belongs, In the book of John. But what I was able to conclude after going through that, this is what they all agree on, is that the story is authentic. It really did happen. The question is whether or not it belongs here in the book of John. Some other manuscripts put it in different places in John. Some put it in Luke. But everyone agrees that this is an authentic story. They also can tell that the message itself is consistent with the true character of Jesus Christ. And as we go through this, you'll see that. We're going to be able to sit there and use this account to sit there and go back through and actually reaffirm many of the things that we sung about this morning. What a great group of songs that we had this morning and so fitting for the message that we have. And I think that after we study this, like these biblical scholars, you're going to find out that this story is one that is well worth our while to study. It has such important messages for all of us in it that I think you'll agree that there's no doubt that this is true to the character of Jesus, and I hope that unless I really mess up and get discombobulated, you'll see why this is such worthwhile to study and why it is true to his character. The good news is is that if I really do mess up this morning, I get another opportunity here at 11 o'clock, so stick around. (laughs) And you can just hang out for the second service and you can, we can do this again. So, okay. Now that we've got that set aside, let's get into the story. You know, for those of y'all have heard me up here teach before, one of the things I like to do is I like to make analogies when I read and I study and I start thinking about what does this remind me of? And usually I go to a movie of some kind because I want to be able to relate to you and, and vice versa and we can sit there and try to, understand these concepts that we're going to study. And if my wife was here, um, she's going to be here for the second service. Um, if my wife was here this morning, she would get a grin when I'd say, you know, I usually come up with Apollo 13. All right? I always have some analogy to Apollo 13. Well, this time, there's no analogy to Apollo 13. But what did come to my mind, are you disappointed? <laughs> what did come to my mind wasn't necessarily well. There was a particular movie, and then there was a series of movies because it happens all the time. So what we have here, right? Roughly in this story, is you have this accused person being brought in front of Christ. They want to stone her. They want to put her to death. And as we see at the end of it, she's not put to death, right? So what does that remind you of? Well, what it reminded me of is it reminds me of all those westerns where you've got the prisoner in the jail cell and you have this mob coming to sit there and try to take the prisoner away and lynch him, right? They come in, and they sit there, and they, they approach the sheriff, and the sheriff's standing there, and there's 50 or 60 people in the mob, and again, this is in so many different references. There are 50 or 60 people saying, we want that person dead. And then the sheriff stands up there on the steps in front of them and goes, nope, it's not going to happen. You're not going to take this person. It's not going to happen. They are going to be tried under the law, and they're going to stay in this jail, and you're not going to take them. And, of course, the mob says, there are 50 or 60 of us. How are you going to stop us all? sheriff usually says, I can't. But I tell you what, I can get five or six of y'all, so five or six up here that want to sit there and die in order to do this, y'all come to the front, and I'll take care of that, and then the rest of y'all can take me and get the mob. Do we get any volunteers? Of course not. We don't get any volunteers. The other movie that it reminds me of is To Kill a Mockingbird. You remember when Jim was in jail, and there they had a mob that was going to go after Jim? For those of y'all who, if you don't know the story of To Kill a Mockingbird, then I'll just simply go ahead and say, shame on you. Um, (laughs) But if you haven't read the book, definitely read the book, and then see the movie. It's Great, right? So in the movie, because that's the image that comes to the mind, that's why you should read the book first. In the movie, the image that comes to mind is Gregory Peck sitting in his chair in front of the jail, and here comes this mob to come and try to take Jim. And if you remember, his daughter Scout and his son Jim and their friend, they sneak out of the house, and they run over there to see what's going on, and they see that mob, and then they run in front of Gregory Peck, Atticus Finch, and they run in front of him, and Scout, in her innocence doesn't understand what's going on, and ask her dad, why are they here? And then she turns around, and the most amazing thing happens. Instead of saying, you know, whichever like the sheriff did, whichever one of y'all wants to come and try to take me, you know, I'll take you first. She recognizes some of the people in the crowd, and she starts pointing them out by name. And she starts telling them, hi, Mr. So-and-so. Don't you remember me? I'm Scout. I was at your house with your daughter, so-and-so. We play together. And through that innocence, disarms the mob, and they just slowly turn away and leave. Right? So that's the image that first came to my mind when I first started going through this. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you ahead of time, the analogy fails in many, many areas, okay? <laughs> it is an analogy that doesn't necessarily work, but there might, some, there might be some things in there that you might be able to sit there and relate back to when we go through it. But the fact of the matter is, This is such a fantastic and beautiful account and story of an encounter with Christ. There is no need for an analogy. Instead, I would submit to you that most of those types of stories have read this, and they use that as their basis for the story, right? This is a fantastic story and one that I really, really hope that we're able to sit there and enjoy together this morning as we discuss it. So... Let's dive into it some more. <clears throat> Sorry, you know I'm a lawyer because I've got yellow pieces of paper. I still don't know why we do yellow, but we do. Okay, so starting at verse, let's start at verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law, or your version might say the scribes, And the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Okay, let's stop there for a minute. We're talking about life-changing encounters with Christ. Just through those verses, we have three different groups that we can talk about. First group's the crowd. Jesus goes to the temple courts early in the morning, and he wants to teach, and there's a crowd that has come around to hear him teach. So you've got a group of people that are just hearing him, and listening to what he has to say as he teaches, there's your first group that is encountering Jesus. Your second group that you have out that have come in are the scribes, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees. They've come in, and as you know through study of the Bible, these people, and as we'll talk more about here, they are not there to sit there and hear the teaching of Christ, right? We know that they're there for other reasons. They hate Jesus Christ and they want to trap him, and we'll find out. That's the second group. The third. Is the woman herself, the one who's been caught in adultery and who they use and have brought before them. So we're going to talk about each one of those little groups here for just a minute. <clears throat> so let's talk about the woman. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery They made her stand before the group, yours might say in the center of the court or in front of the group, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Well, here's the problem, right? They brought this woman, and they say that she was caught in the act of adultery. And they say that Moses told us the law says such women should be stoned to death. I want you to get and understand fully what this image is here. In order to be caught in the act of adultery, there had to have been witnesses, and so they literally have caught her in the act of adultery. could very well that they immediately then dragged her to the courts right then and there in order to be punished. That means that if she was caught in the act of adultery, that she could very well be Half clothed, not clothed, but she is in a humiliated and ashamed state. And here she is brought to the temple, courts, and she's put in front of a crowd. And she is being used by these Pharisees, and and they are demanding that she be stoned to death. So imagine this woman. There is no question, and there is nothing in here. She doesn't say anything until the end. There is no profession that she's innocent. She doesn't exclaim that this is a mistake. She is guilty of the sin. And she's been brought there, and she's in a humiliated, ashamed state. And can you imagine that she is scared out of her mind? Of course she is. Now, let's talk about the Pharisees. The Pharisees have brought this woman before them, and have taken her in there, and we know what the Pharisees, the problem that the Pharisees have with Christ, right? They have all sorts of problems with Christ. One, because of who he proclaims, and he's been pointing out their hypocrisy over and over and over again. If you'll, as you know, the Pharisees were supposed to be experts in the law, as were the scribes. The scribes, they were all both experts in the law. They understood the law of Moses, the law as Moses was given by the Lord very well, but they have, over time, they have misapplied this right? We understand this, and we understand that they're mistake, and Jesus is going to point it out to them. So the Pharisees have brought this woman in front of the temple courts and have told Jesus she's been caught in the act of adultery. Is there any indication at all that they care one bit about this woman or anything about this woman? No. It's obvious she is being completely being used by the Pharisees and the scribes of the law. They are using her for a sole purpose, and that is to try to trap Jesus Christ. I gave something away, right? Try to trap Jesus Christ. They think that they've got a good trap, and so they've used this woman to do it. But as you read that, and as you think about this just up to this point in time, before Christ responds, think about this for a minute as we set this scene. They have brought this woman, quote, caught in the act of adultery. As I mentioned before, under the law that was given to Moses, in order to be caught to where you could be punished for something like death, for adultery, you had to have at least two witnesses. How, then, do you actually catch someone in the act of adultery? It's a tough thing to do, right? Me being a formal prosecutor and looking at lots of police reports, if this came to me, I would want to know, okay, exactly how did you catch this woman in adultery? So here, as I was going through this, trying to logically think about how this could possibly happen, I said, well, I guess it could be luck. Luck. You were just walking by, the door was open, the window was open, and you witnessed it, and a couple of y'all witnessed it, and you ran in there and grabbed her and came back. That seems really highly unlikely, wouldn't you say? So I would think that there's a couple of other ways that you could have done it. You could have known ahead of time that this couple was in an adulterous affair. In fact, it could be that you actually knew one of them that was in the adulterous affair and knew when it was going to happen. What's missing, by the way, from this scene of dragging the woman in front of the temple courts? Where's the man? Exactly. That's exactly right. Where is... You don't get to commit adultery by yourself. There always is another. Where is the man? And we'll look at it here in a minute, but the law is pretty clear. It talks about both the man and the woman, the adulterer and the adulteress being brought before it and to seek punishment. So where's the man? These Pharisees, in their self-righteousness, have brought forth this woman, and we already know just from those verses itself that there's something amiss about this whole thing, right? Just by looking at the facts that are there before. Let's continue on. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap, or yours might say in order to catch him, in order to have a basis for accusing him. So what is, ask me, what is the trap? What is the trap that we have here? Pardon, my throat's getting a little dry. The trap is this. Jesus has made, and one of the things that has bothered the Pharisees the most, as we've studied in the New Testament, numerous times Jesus has done some things that the Pharisees think are just inappropriate, to say the least. He's done some horrible things like having dinner with a tax collector. He's done some horrible things by interacting with those who are not clean because of his love and his grace and his caring for who they were. He has developed a reputation, and he has said that he has come here to save the sinners, to save the unwashed, to save the unclean. He has developed this reputation of being the guy for the downtrodden, for the little man. He has developed this reputation. So when they bring this adulteress in front of the temple courts and they put her out in front of Christ and they ask him, what do you say? The law says she's supposed to be stoned to death. What do you say? Well, he has two choices here, right? According to the Pharisees. His choices are we're not going to stone her. Because after all, he has cares for and has shown how he has sympathy for the sinner, how he is looking to save them. That could be one thing. But if he does that, then what happens? It's contrary to the law. In fact, you don't have to turn over there, but I will. In Deuteronomy, this is the law that they're talking about. So both in Exodus and the Ten Commandments and Leviticus, you do see that when you commit adultery, the crime is death. And in Deuteronomy... Chapter 22, verse 22. Let me just go ahead and read. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in town a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. So they're correct in the law that the crime, the punishment for the crime of adultery is to be put to death. And so then if they bring it to Jesus and if he says that he is not there to abolish the law but to fulfill it, and they sit there and say that this is the law, what do you say, Christ? And he goes, well, that's the punishment. You stone her to death. Then what happens? Then he loses his reputation, one. All those other people that are listening and hearing him teach that came to hear him, my guess is a lot of them have already... Why are they there? They've hurt his reputation. They know who he is. They know who he is for. They come forth, and they want to hear him, and then the Pharisees are trying to trap him. And they're all, that crowd, that other group out there watching, they're going, oh, what's he going to do? They're right. She should be stoned to death. But, but doesn't he, isn't he here to help people like her? Because I promise you, in her state, other than the Pharisees, my guess is there were people out there that were sympathetic that felt some mercy in their heart. Not the Pharisees, not the scribes. She's being used as a pawn. They do not care about her at all. So they're wondering what Jesus is going to say. Is he going to denounce the law and say she should go free? Or is he going to say, yes, she should be stoned? The other thing that if he does say, yes, she should be stoned to death, and he participates at all, he's also committed a crime. Remember that they're under control of the Romans at this point in time. The only body that has the ability to put anyone to death are the Romans. So if he does this, he commits a crime and could very well be arrested. So they think no matter which way he goes, we've got him. Jesus Christ is trapped. What's he going to do? So do we think this is the first time that that Jesus has been, they've tried to trap Jesus? No, right? Every other opportunity, every other chance that they get, they do it. Remember, they they did it with the coin. (coughs) You know, we're supposed to pay taxes because, of course, taxes were horrible and evil. Um, And he got through that, right? Said, look, whose image is on the coin? Render under Caesar, right? What is Caesar's? Render under the Lord, what's the Lord's? So this isn't the first time they tried to trap him. And are we surprised that Jesus is going to be able to thwart this? But let's sit there and see. But instead of directly responding to him, what does Jesus do? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. <laughs> oh, isn't that a fun image, He's teaching in the court, all these people around him. The Pharisees barge in. They're so self righteous. They've got him. They're setting a trap. They put this poor woman right in front of him and they say, She's supposed to be stoned according to the law from Moses. What do you do? Hmm. Just starts drawing on the ground. Now, I know all of y'all are thinking right now, just like I did, and have numerous times, what did he write? What is on the ground? What is he saying? And there's lots of ideas that are out there if you study this, and I'm sure you've heard them. I mean, you've heard everything from Jesus was biding time so he could get his thoughts together. He was surprised by it. Yeah, I don't buy that one at all, right? That one doesn't seem to fit. There's the idea of, well, he sat there and he just put it down because he didn't hear them or he wanted to act like he didn't hear them. Okay. There's the idea of he started writing down on the ground, and this one also has a movie image to it. He started writing on the ground their sins or the Ten Commandments. He started writing it in front of them. Imagine, if you will, if any of y'all have seen The Lord of the Rings. You know, at some point in time, Gandalf brings up a staff with a special stone on the end of it, and he, he puts it in front of various walls, and you'll see you know, language that comes up and then disappears, right? This is how I imagine it. He's, if if this is what happens, he's writing on the ground, Pharisee Bob, third commandment, you failed with so-and-so, and and then it disappears, and only Pharisee Bob saw it. Pharisee Sam, you did this, it fell, and it disappears, right? So each one of them can see that he knows their hearts and knows the sin that they've committed. There's also the idea that he's just putting it down because he's ashamed. He's like, really? Really? You've come here and brought this, thinking you're going to trap me. You're humiliating this woman. We're in the temple courts. I'm not going to give you the time of day. And so he starts riding on the ground. What are the facts? What do we know? We know he wrote on the ground, and we know we don't know. That's all that we know from our text. Of course, they weren't having it. He started writing on the ground with his finger, and when they kept questioning him, How dare you not respond to us? He straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. What does the question that Jesus gives them do? Is it contrary to the law? Absolutely not. He confirms it. He doesn't say that y'all are wrong, that your application of the law is wrong. He doesn't say that at all. He just simply says, hey, okay, she deserves to be stoned. So, whichever one you use without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he starts riding in the ground again. Isn't the, the response fascinating? Then they started to leave one by one. The oldest first. There's also been lots of speculation. as to Why did the oldest leave first? I've become a little more sympathy with the olders because I turned 50 a couple weeks ago. I'm thinking because they were smart enough to sit there and go, he's got us. They've lived longer, they've sinned more. I think that they probably were sitting there going, yep, yep. We didn't catch him this time, so we're going to move on. The younger ones have got more of the zeal, more of the fire, more of the emotion, more of the how can you, how can you, and it takes them a little bit longer to get there. This is Matt Wade speaking. That's not what the text says. It just simply says that the older ones leave first. So for me, it's like the older ones like, okay, let's cut bait and move on. As we say in West Texas, right? This isn't going to work. We aren't going to catch him. Let's move on. So So they move on, then the younger ones. And then what does the text say? At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Are you not amazed that she is still standing there? She's humiliated. She's ashamed. She may be half naked, and she's still standing there. She could have walked off at any point in time, but she is still standing there. Don't you just want to ask the question, why? I think we get the answer. Woman. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman. By the way, that term woman that he uses there, the term woman is a term of respect. It's the same term that he used when he spoke to his mother. Woman. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Does Jesus say that it's okay to commit adultery? No. Let me say that again. Jesus does not say that it's okay to commit adultery. What he says is, I do not condemn you. Of everyone that was there that actually had the authority to pick up a stone, the one who had the authority, because he was sinless and was perfect, and did have the authority to judge, said, I do not condemn you. And then he says, essentially, repent and sin no more. Leave. Leave your life of sin. Don't you also wish that there was a rest of the story, the old Paul Harvey deal, and we knew what happened with her? I like to think that she did exactly what he told her to do. I like to think that she became a follower because I think the reason she didn't leave is because she knew she was guilty and she needed someone to save her, and that man just saved her. The only one in the crowd. The crowd's left. It says they're left alone. So it is just Jesus and her. Isn't that another amazing image in and of itself? It is personal. This isn't about the crowd. This isn't about everyone else being there. It is personal. It is Jesus with her. It is a conversation between Jesus and her. Jesus and you. Jesus and me. You know, he says, I do not condemn you. He had the authority to do it. What does also Jesus understand? In a couple of months, he doesn't condemn her, but he knows he's going to be carrying her sin with him on the cross. He knows that he is going to be the sacrifice for her. And he is fulfilling exactly what he said earlier in John when he said, and I'll read it, or what John the Baptist said about Jesus, I should say. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received. One blessing after another. This is John the Baptist. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. How had the Pharisees failed? How unbelievably complete had the Pharisees failed? They failed because they did not understand the purpose of the law. The law, as we know and as we've studied, the law was designed to point out our sinful nature, our desperate need for a Savior. The law was not designed so man could sit there and condemn other men. What does Jesus say about judging other men in Matthew 5? He says, do not judge lest you be judged in the same manner. And then he goes through the analogy of you're so easy to judge about someone the speck in someone else's eye you ignore the log in your own eye. The Pharisees had such a huge log in their eye that even when they they probably couldn't see themselves when they looked in the mirror. They are so self-righteous. They do not need a savior in their minds. But the law was designed just to point to our desperate need for the Savior. So when Christ says, I've come to complete, I've come to fulfill the law, he has. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So my question for you this morning, the Pharisees didn't get it. The adulteress, the way that I read this, was getting it, started to understand. The story is for us. Don't, isn't this a wonderful story? Isn't it such a, I mean, we don't have time. I'm already out of time. I thought to myself, man, I'm not sure I'm going to end early and people are going to leave. And I, I want more time. So I'm going to leave it with, with here. I'm going to leave this question here with you, and then we'll end in prayer. Let me ask you this. Where are you? Which group are you in? Are you part of the crowd that was just watching his teaching and checking him out, just seeing what's going on, and then when things kind of got a little uncomfortable and everything else, you're like, oh, that's pretty interesting, but yeah, I think I'm going to head on out. Are you the Pharisees? You know your Bible real well, and you're quick to point out everyone else who fails and who sins. You sit there and see someone else, see somebody on TV, see something else happening, see somebody out in the street, and go, man, they need to go to church. Are you the adulteress? Are you the adulteress? Do you recognize that you are a sinner? Do you recognize that you are in desperate need of a savior? And if you do, and if you are, are you leaving your life in sin? That's the question I want to leave with you. Where are you? I'll go ahead and confess. For me, I've been all three. And they're all sinners. And everyone who was there that morning before Christ needed a savior. Let me pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Our most gracious, loving, saving, just Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you so much for this account. Thank you so much for this time. And thank you for these people. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to read it, to study it, to know more about you. Dear Lord, as we go forth in this world, Help us remember that we are mere sinners who are in need of a Savior. And being saved, dear Lord, help us us work towards being more like you, loving our neighbor, loving you. Dear Lord, help us not forget the lessons that we learn here each, each week. Help us not forget the lessons that you've presented to us this morning. All these things we ask in your Son, who is our Savior's name, amen.